When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 20, and we're recording on February 23rd. I'm Sharifa Williams, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. And today we're going to be talking about great, big, very long, very good, aka epic series. But before we get into that, and before we get into the news of the day, I am going to tell you a little bit about an excellent giveaway we're doing right now that is very exciting. It's our Instagram cloth-bound giveaway. So basically what we're doing is we're giving away $500 in Penguin Cloth-bound Classics. These are designed by Coralie Bickford-Smith. They're beautiful, and it includes the, the selections include favorites from Dickens, George Eliot, Mary Shelley, and Tolstoy. I actually am the one who chose all of the books. <gasps> did you? I, I did. didn't know that. <laughs> you lucky. Oh my goodness. That must it, have been so much fun. It took me so long because I was like, what about this? Because there are a lot of these <laughs> books listed. And I was like, well, I, you know, I have to give like the, a good sort of variety and make sure everything's <laughs> balanced. So I was just sitting there. It was ridiculous. If you saw me, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and I have the books in my apartment. So I oh know my God. they exist. Stop it. <laughs> and I'm like, what if I just never send them? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I would be like, oh, they got lost in the mail. So yeah, sorry. Well, so sorry. I promise I will send them to you <laughs> if you win. So if that sounds exciting, as exciting to you as it does to me, the giveaway is open until March 13th. So you have a little time, but I would get to it right away. And to find out how to enter, and what the rules are, just go to Instagram.com slash Book Riot. And the giveaway is actually, you can find the giveaway most easily by going to our highlights section at the top of our Instagram profile. And there's a link to the actual post. It's in there. It's in the grid. And you can't miss that beauty. So <laughs> just go to our Instagram profile and you will find out how to enter. And good luck to you because I'm super excited to find out who wins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. Let's see. I'll do our first sponsor and then we will get into the news. And our sponsor is The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro and Daniel Krauss. But not just the movie. It is now a novel. So uh, Guillermo del Toro and author Daniel Krauss have combined their talents to produce this haunting, heartbreaking love story. IO9 says that uh, co-author Daniel Kress's book and the film tell the same story of a mute woman who falls in love with an imprisoned and equally mute creature in two very different ways. I have seen the movie and I did not realize they were going to do a parallel novelization. And I'm so curious because it's so it is such a visual 
feast that movie. Like I have quibbles with some some uh, like actual plot aspects, but just looking at it was amazing. It's a beautiful looking movie. And I'm so curious to see how that translates into a novel. Um, and apparently they developed this from the ground up as a two-tiered release. So it's one story interpreted by two artists in independent mediums of literature and film. Um, and the, uh, the film, as you know, has been receiving a ton of acclaim. It got 13 Academy Award nominations, which is bonkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, the book releases on March 6th. And it is available for pre-order now, so you should get to your computers and check it out. I'm so I'm very curious. I'm very curious. Did Me I say too. I was curious? I'm curious. <laughs> super I'm super you. curious. Yeah. I love. Did you that see movie. it too? Yeah. Yes, it was like my because I love the movie Amelie, mm. and it was kind of like that sort of science fiction uh, like I didn't know I needed a science fiction feeling Amelie in my mm. life and so I I really enjoyed the movie interesting I loved it. yeah I really it was I'm really glad I saw it in the theater it's beautiful mm -hmm. the actors were amazing I did read some critiques coming out of the disabled and hard of hearing community um, about the movie which I thought sounded like they seemed pretty valid um, and so but you can google that if you want to know more uh, but yeah it, it is a really I mean if you just look at it as a like at its very baseline fable about a woman who falls in love with a monster like it's pretty they did a pretty good job. Um, yeah. I should read from, those articles. I haven't come across them yet, but I am very interested in knowing. Yeah, maybe I'll drop a link in the show notes just so people can find it. It was a very well-spoken critique of the movie, I thought. So so that's okay. worth that's worth reading up on. Uh, should I just keep talking? Can I pick yeah, our first? Can I pick our first news story? All right. Well, I want to talk about the Nebula nomination. Yes. <laughs> because for the first time, basically ever, I have read most of the nominees for best novel. Mm -hmm. uh, that never happens to me. I'm always like, oh, I, I maybe heard about these books. Um, but yes, the uh, science fiction and fantasy writers of America have released the nominees for the uh, Nebula Awards for 2017 book. And the no best novel category in particular is the one I'm excited about because it includes Amberlow, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, Spoonbenders, The Stone Sky, Six Wakes, Jade City, and Autonomous. And I've read all of those and loved them, except I haven't read The Alchemist's Daughter or Spoonbenders. Those were the only two I hadn't read. Um, so I felt I was like patting myself on the back. I was like, I'm up <laughs> on my, I'm up on my literature. <laughs> I love this list as well. I'm still I'm still working through Jade City because it was so long. I it's had so to long. move on it is because long. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be sitting here forever because I'm a slow <laughs> reader. Spoonbenders, actually, I didn't read that either, but it sounded really interesting. Maybe just because I like like the the superhero gone to seed sort of story. Mm. So mm -hmm. it was, that one sounded interesting. But I also read more books on this list as well than I usually do. Yes. Because I, I don't know what happens every other year, but no. it just seems like I miss all of the award winners. And this time I'm like, I was with you. I was very excited. Like I didn't expect to see Amberlo on there. For mm -hmm. some reason I thought this was – that was an under the radar sort of read, but I guess not. <laughs> Maybe it's just certainly, me. <laughs> certainly it was on the radar of the judges. I, yeah. I was also delighted to see the best novella category because it has River of mm -hmm. Teeth 
and the Black Tides of Heaven, both of which I really loved. And then all of the insiders are obsessed with the murder bot books, um, which start with All Systems Red, which is also nominated. So, yeah, I feel very up on it this year. Although novelette and short story, I kind of never know anything about. And this year is similar. I, I have not read any of those, but you you can read all of those, almost all of those online. So I'm going to be doing that in the coming weeks. Yeah, me too. I was thinking about making that part of my weekend reading plans because it does this article that we're looking at from The Verge does have links to mo- I think most of the uh stories. I think there's just one that's not mm-hmm. in the from the short <clears throat> short story and the novelette categories that's not linked, but it's kind of a great way like to uh, because I never really read short stories and novelettes mm-hmm. during the year. So it's this is kind of if there's anything for me at least to be gained from some of these awards lists when they have these links that show you where you can read them online. It is a way for me to sort of bone up on what I've been missing out on and see what's going on in the world of short stories. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to find out what these are all about, especially this one called there was one where I was like, what could this possibly be about? <laughs> oh, no. No. You know, that was on a different – it was on a different awards list, but it had something like a series of stakes. No, it's on this one. That's under it's novelette. On, okay, it's, okay. It is literally called – I was going to say, I bet it's that <laughs> one. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what else I was excited about for this list is the, um, the Andre Norton Award category – Want by Cindy Pond is on it, oh, which yeah. I loved. Now, I haven't read the other three books. And Fonda Lee, who wrote Jade City, is on here mm-hmm. for EXO. So congrats to her for two nominations. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited for Want. I really, like, if I if I was going to pick one book on this whole list to, like, stand for, it would be that one. <laughs> just because just because N.K. Jemison doesn't need me to stand for her. Like, she's she's doing just fine without me. Um, but, but I really want more people to have read Want by Cindy Pond. So, so yeah, the, consider this my, my vote. Not that I'm allowed to vote, but if I could, I would vote for that. I really like Cindy Pond and like I follow her on Instagram and mm. she has a lot of cat pictures. So Ooh. that's part of my bias. <laughs> Note to self, will But you? she's a great writer. And I heard that, that Want is actually like inspired by that movie Legend uh, by Ridley Scott, and I loved that movie. So I have had this book on my list for my TBR list for a really long time. But now that it has your the extra <laughs> from you recommending it, I think I have to I have to push this up on my list because do I keep it. seeing it everywhere. Yes, I'm going to do this. Excellent. <laughs> um. Do you have anything more you want to gush about with this list? I mean, I think I've gushed enough. It's a really (laughs) good list, though, y'all. It's a really good list. I know. And if you haven't read some of the, this is like one of those lists where I would say like, because normally I'm like, okay, well, it's an awards list. Like, look at it if you want. If you want to read some of the books, read them. But this one I would definitely recommend actually considering these books if you haven't read them already, because there are a lot of good ones. I I kind of, it's like, I love so many of those books on the best novel list, but I kind of want to see Jemison win a nebula for every single book in the Broken Earths trilogy. Like that would be, I I don't know if it would be a record or not. I know that she's already busted some records, Mm -hmm. but I, I just feel like that would make me 
really happy to see. So I know I it's just the situation. Like I, I, I also I believe that book is incredible. Um, but the, it would be like a double win in my head if if literally every book in that series won a Nebula. That would make me delighted. Yeah, when I saw that, I was I definitely was wondering like, is this something that doesn't like? Will they be hesitant mm-hmm. to give it an award because it's such a big deal? It would be a huge deal if she won like for every single book. But I mean, if it's good, it's good. So right. it'll be interesting if she yeah. does. Ultimately, I'll be happy for all of these books, whoever yeah. wins. But yeah, that was my that was my other thought. Agreed. Agreed. Um, do you want to move on to Black Panther? I feel like that's the yes. next, like, in giant news. <laughs> so <laughs> I sort of expected this to happen. I'm not patting myself on the back here, but I've just been reading a lot of news from Black Panther. But so what basically happened is that Black Panther topped Avengers for the highest Wednesday. And it this movie has just been making scads of cash and I couldn't be happier about it. Um, so yeah, Black Panther the movie took in $14.5 million on Wednesday in North American locations. And that's the highest Wednesday gross for a Marvel Cinematic Universe title, which is incredible. So to give you some comparison... Uh, the Avengers took in $13.6 million on its first Wednesday back in 2012. And now in total, Black Panthers grossed $277.5 million in its first six days domestically. And it'll cross the $500 million mark in worldwide box office. Um, and that was on Thursday, so perhaps it already has. So I'm just like, I am so excited for this movie and I've been seeing so many uplifting things about, you know, people going to see it right when it comes out and there was, there were all sorts of crowdfunding campaigns to get children to see this movie, especially children um, in black communities like Harlem. And so I was really I was kind of on the edge of my seat about how it would perform in the theater because I know that everybody, like with the Wonder Woman movie as well, everybody is, they have very much has their eye on how the actual money, like how much it the movie will make mm-hmm. because for whether you're on the side of in my opinion, wrong or right. <laughs> People are going to be using those numbers to make certain arguments. So, of course, it's it's a little bit nerve-wracking when you have a movie like Black Panther. It's written and directed by a black man, and it's, the, like, the full cast of black characters. Like, I really wanted to see this do well, and so I couldn't have been happier when this news came out. And you saw it already. I haven't seen it yet. I did. It was wonderful. It was so lush. The world building <sighs> is amazing. Um, and it's also a movie that, I mean, people have talked about this in reviews, how the way that it balances its villain and its hero is really interesting. Um, and it kind of like ripped my heart out a little oh. bit and then like stomped on it a bunch of times. <laughs> oh and I was just like, oh, I have so many feelings now. Um, 
And the action was great. I loved the action sequences. I loved them. And, you know, I wasn't surprised because Ryan Coogler also directed Creed, which I really enjoyed. And um, I, I have, like, a weird thing for action movies. And that's not weird, but, like, I'm a very peaceful person, so it's weird that I'm enjoying boxing movies is what I'm saying. But I do. And I, the the boxing in that movie was amazing, so I wasn't surprised that he did really good hand-to-hand combat scenes. Um, and, like, it, it, you know, sometimes in the Marvel Universe, like, a punch doesn't really mean anything like they've got armor or super strength or whatever like you can punch them until your hands fall off and it doesn't mean anything um, but in a lot of the fight sequences in Black Panther it actually felt like a punch meant something when it landed which I loved to see so I yeah no it's and and the like the number <laughs> of 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 amazing scenes that women got that black women got you know we had four basically four lead female characters, all of whom got to be women and and powerful women in very different ways. They were definitely not just like cookie cutter repeats of each other. They all had different opinions and they had different fighting styles and they had different strengths and weaknesses. And it was just so great. It was great. I'm really excited. Like I need to, I was, I couldn't get to see it. I didn't want to be like the only (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> so ridiculous because I live in Portland and Portland is mostly white people. Oh, and I was yeah. like, I don't want to be like the only black person in the crowd. That's but, real. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. But I want to – I have to go see it because I don't want anybody to spoil anything for me. Like nothing you said, of course, was spoily. I tried so, not to. But yeah, yeah. I, I came <laughs> I very close it. to talking about my like – I have like one teeny tiny quibble with the movie, but I won't say anything about it. It's like romance related. Ignore me. It's fine. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I'll have to. I'll. I'll try. Yeah. When you go see it, it then you text me and we'll talk. So. I will. I will. Okay. I'm going to try and see it this weekend, actually. Um. So yeah. And then you you post this link of oh, oh yeah some African tribes that that were actually used for inspiration in the movie that I thought was really interesting because I mean that does support the whole like huge world building aspect of this movie which I could sort of tell already from the trailer but this is a really cool list I was just like perusing it just before we got on and I was like this is so cool it just amped up my excitement <laughs> yeah I I I'm a you know I was a history major and I love learning about different like cultural practices and I love seeing them represented on screen and and it was really really amazing um a Twitter user uh put together this whole thread on the different like you know scarves and cloaks and jewelry and armor and whatever um that inspired some of the costuming and scenes in the film and and we'll link to it in the show notes it's amazing and Ruth Carter who was the costume designer um and and like uh Hannah Beachler who is the production designer are both black women and like they did I mean they clearly did their research and they did an amazing job bringing it to the screen it's just like I said it's so lush like it just it felt so it's vibrant and there was so much depth to every scene in Wakanda it was really it's really stunning it's just stunning um so yeah we'll link to this thread because it's real cool it's really really yeah absolutely it kind of makes me want to like i wish she could i wish somebody would make costumes for me but (laughs) (laughs) but i'm not in a movie so (laughs) 
Well, I, you know, we've been talking about how haute couture in particular, but also oh, yeah. like fandom is getting more clothes. I will, I believe deep down, I believe like we'll bet money on it that we will see some really interesting fashion coming out of Black Panther, like that Ooh, you can wear. I, I hope so. And I hope they don't do it in a weird appropriating. I was but. just going to say, and it, some of it will be the worst. Like some I of it know. will be very appropriative and gross. Like if H&M comes out with the Black Panther oh, line, I'm going to, I'm going to throw some things, but yikes. <laughs> Hopefully they know better than that, but I don't think they do actually. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Too. There was already like, I don't even need to go into that news post that went out a while indeed, back. Indeed. Anyway, where do yeah. you want to go next? Oh boy. Um, what should we talk about next? I want to talk about I wanted to talk about gosh, I want to talk about the name of the wind. That's what I want to talk about. Okay. This this news happened a little while back. Um, end of January. They confirmed that Sam Raimi is was in talks to direct the Name of the Wind, which is the first book in the King Killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss, which is getting a TV series and a feature film, right? Like yeah. we remember this. It's getting all of the yeah. all of the adaptations. And Lynn Manuel Miranda is working on the music um, for the Showtime prequel series, but the movie had kind of not had an update in a little while. And so Sam Raimi is in talks to direct, which is I think an interesting. Interesting in quotation marks choice. <laughs> I still have not forgiven Sam Raimi for the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, which oh I'm my goodness. deeply not a fan of. So, yeah, question same. mark? Question mark? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I like the Sam Raimi of old just because I used to like, um, you know, really not bad. I guess B-horror movies. Right. And so, you know, I love the Evil Dead. But I was the same way with Spider-Man. I cannot, mm -hmm. I cannot nope. with those movies. And it'll be interesting. Like, I haven't read the King, the King Killer Chronicles. So I don't have like any specific attachment to this. I think that the most exciting thing that came out of this for me was just Lin-Manuel Miranda's yeah. involvement. <laughs> that was the one time where I was like, hey, that sounds fun. That sounds awesome. Like, I'm excited whenever he was working on a project. It's kind of an interesting pairing. So I am curious. Yeah, well, not to fansplain at you, but I have read the Go first ahead. one. I haven't read the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't I haven't read the rest of them, but I've read the first one and the main character is a bard, right? So so everybody was freaking out happy about Lynn Manuel Miranda being involved because he is a musician, obviously, and so hopefully we'll get some really interesting music for the main characters like I don't know. I guess he'll have music scenes. Like yeah. you don't hire Lynn Manuel and then not have music scenes, right? So so that's kind of interesting. Um also, my other reservation is that the script is is being written by Lindsay Beer, who was a writer on Transformers The Last Night, which was a mess. Like, <laughs> that movie, it had a lot of very fun explosions, but I, 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 I don't, I mean, I didn't expect much from the plot, but boy, did it have internal continuity problems. Oh, no. I haven't like I cannot I, I'm not I'm not a Transformers no. fan and those those first ones like I was like I I, I wanted to be into it just for the action stuff right. but then I was like no no it, it, 
Yeah, it's not one of my beloved action franchises, to be perfectly honest. And I was watching the last night because a friend put it on and like held me yeah. captive at her house. <laughs> so we watched it. Um, and, you know, I was like, well, Arthur, King Arthur plus Transformers, like maybe that's going to be interesting. I take it like it was not interesting. Oh, no. Um, so I'm a little nervous about this whole shebang. Like, because these are, okay, so these are big, splody action writers and directors, right? Like they do yeah. big, crazy action movies. And, Name of the Wind is kind of a slow, character-driven, sort of world-building, thinky book. Um, and if you put that kind of team on the movie, you're not going to get that kind of movie. And Right? Like, that's not the yeah. kind of movie you're going to get. So I feel like the adaptation is going in a very Hollywood direction, which is fine. It is Hollywood. Like, that's... And, you know, whatever happens with it, more people will be led to read the books, which is good for the book. I just really wonder how much of the vibe of the books will get onto the screen. Get ready for bards doing action scenes <laughs> and explosions. Bards and clear. explosions. <laughs> That's our show title for the day. I know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, especially like hearing more about the story. I'm... <laughs> I just, he goes to bard school like there's one scene with a dragon but not much happens like i just i don't know i'm confused. no now it's gonna be all about that dragon scene mm, that's mm -hmm. how they're gonna that's how they're gonna write it yeah i mean they might surprise us so <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's we're being a little bit hasty but i doubt it yeah well <laughs> um should we just go right into i think we're we're up with our time for news I think you're it right looks like so i'm going to tell you about our second sponsor and that is the philosopher's flight by tom miller so in an alternate history where only women are strong enough to practice a dangerous art of magic and science a uniquely talented young man goes where none has gone before Joining the ranks of powerful, flying women, he takes to the sky to fight prejudice, injustice, and the men seeking to destroy their world. In the tradition of Lev Grossman and Deborah Harkness, Tom Miller writes with unrivaled imagination, ambition, and humor. The Philosopher's Flight is both a fantastical reimagining of American history and a beautifully composed coming-of-age tale for anyone who has ever felt like an outsider. So thank you very much for sponsoring our show. That was The Philosopher's Flight by Tom Miller. And so why don't you kick us off with our our theme, which is a very big, <laughs> very me. big, very long, very good epic series. Yes, I got a little wordy with our our, our show notes. Apologies. I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was an interesting thing to think about because obviously we have so many series that we love. Yeah. And also I made us some rules that I then immediately regretted. But <laughs> the rule was <laughs> that there had to be four or more books. Like we'll we'll do a separate episode that's just about trilogies. Trilogies are kind of their own special thing. But when we were thinking about it, I specifically wanted to think about series that were longer than just three books so then I was like oh what have I done but um <laughs> but for my fantasy pick I picked the world of Riverside series which is it starts with the original book which is Swords Point by Ellen Kushner which came out back in the 80s 1987 uh, is when that book was first published and it's this very sort of 
you know, it's a city in a pre-industrial or just like verging on industrial time frame. There's aristocracy and they hire these swordsmen to do to work out their like political and personal conflicts for them. So instead of challenging another noble to a duel, you send your swordsman to fight his swordsman and whoever wins like that decides the issue. And um, the original book follows a very talented swordsman who uh, gets sort of pulled into this job that is not just a regular job. And um, you also meet uh, his lover, Alex, who's a scholar who's struggling with addiction and depression and all kinds of really intense stuff and goes around like picking fights so that Richard, who's the swordsman, will have to kill people for him. He's very, he's very chaotic. Um, And, um, and then you meet one of the the Duchess of Tremontaine, who's like a sort of, you know, she's a woman who is a widow or her husband is not around. I can't remember which it is in the original. And um, and she's, you know, sort of pretending to be like your average noble lady who's just concerned about her dresses. But actually, she's a political mover and shaker behind the scenes. So you get this really sort of I mean, it was it's a very white sort of very privileged world on the page. Although Richard, who's the swordsman, and Alex live in kind of a rundown, ramshackle, like, bad part of town. Uh, but, but, but so since then, Kushner has written more books in the series. So she then wrote The Privilege of the Sword is the second one, and then Fall of the Kings is the third one. And then she has opened up the world to be written in by other people via this company, Serial Box, who are doing, quote-unquote, seasons of stories. So Tremontaine is the continuation of the world of Riverside, and it's got a ton of people writing in it, including Melinda Lowe, uh, Aliyah Don Johnson. Like per- Those are two in particular personal favorites of mine. And so each of these authors, there are a bunch of them, get to write a story alongside other writers set in this world. So it's kind of like, you know, different people working on different episodes of the same TV show. That's the concept, except it's books, which is what Serial Box is all about. And I read the first quote-unquote season of Tremontaine, and it was great. I was really astonished at how well all of these different writers, who if you know their work, you know they don't write anything like Ellen Kushner in the normal day, um, brought their own sensibilities, but really maintained the feel and the sort of atmosphere of the world that Ellen Kushner had created. Um, and they also brought, you know, more characters and there are now POC involved and, and different cultures. And it, it's so, it's so interesting to have seen the series. Cause I, I just only recently started reading these. And if I had read them back in the day, I might have, you know, like who knows what I would have thought about it, but reading them now and so close to each other when they came out separated by decades was really interesting to me. So I think I picked this series in part because watching it evolve from the original book, which was published in the 80s, to now the seasons, which are ongoing, is really fascinating. It's a really interesting example of a way that something that starts in a really contained, singular manner can grow and change. Um, and, uh, and, and kind of related to this, Serial Box, which is the publishing studio that's doing this stuff, and they have a bunch of other uh, books and series that they're working with, just ra- they just raised uh, $1.65 million in seed investment, which is maybe going to like turn it into a television and film development company as well as 
ebooks and audio, which is what they do now. So this company might be worth keeping an eye on. Like, I don't really know what's going to come next, but it's pretty interesting. It's it's pretty interesting to see what's coming out of it. So yeah, it, it there's a lot of interesting stuff sort of swirling around this series. So again, that is The Swords Point uh, by Ellen Kushner, which was the original book. Um, you can now read Tremontaine season one. It's available in like a one big collected edition. I think season two is out or coming out soon. Um, and there's more to come from that. That's a really fascinating move from Ellen Kushner. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, can you imagine? Very protective, right? Like she literally was like, "Sure, come play in my sandbox. Like you can, you can add characters. It's fine." I can't imagine. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the the book that I'm going to talk about next, or the series rather, is one where I would perhaps be a little bit more possessive even than the author about like (laughs) please don't don't mess with this series but um so of course at first I wrote that I was gonna discuss Discworld for the fantasy part of this uh but that would have taken like 10 years so (laughs) I whittled down my fantasy option to the Tiffany Aching series within the Discworld series and this is of course by Terry Pratchett Um, And the Tiffany Aching series is possibly the one I should have started with when I was in my teens and checking out Discworld for the first time. Uh, The story follows a young witch named Tiffany as she gets her education and mentorships in witchery. And there are a number of witches in the Discworld universe. Um, If you've ever read them, you've probably encountered a few of them, whether it was their main story or whether they just popped up in a story. Um, And as it happens in this world, some of them make, you know, these cameo and not so cameo appearances. And in this series, it's particularly the Lenker Coven of Witches, um, which is the main, I think they're the main witches of Discworld. I don't think anybody would argue about that. (laughs) And (laughs) they're led by, of course, Granny Weatherwax, one of my favorite characters in Discworld. And perhaps the grand dame of witches in that world. She's also an important figure in the Tiffany Aching series and in Tiffany's education. And it's funny because when you get this deep in a series, it does begin to feel like a world you live in. And you do, especially with something as sprawling as Discworld. And you do begin to think things like, well, Tiffany Aching is vetted by Granny Weatherwax, so maybe I'll accept that introduction after all. Like, you follow (laughs) these characters into these other sort of smaller series within uh, the Discworld series, and you find new characters to like, and that's exactly how I came upon uh, the Tiffany Aching series. And there are five books in this series, And the final book, which is The Shepherd's Crown, is the last book Pratchett wrote before his death. So I have all sorts of feelings about the series and about that final book. I, there was like, (laughs) there was one of the, one of the books, um, I think it was I Shall Wear Midnight. I was sitting in my car crying after listening to the afterword at the end of the book which is the fourth book in the series, by the way. And I was at the end of a very long, very emotionally trying and solitary road trip. And Pratchett had recently uh, passed away when I read this one. Mm. But there were some words of wisdom I needed to hear in that author's note. 
And this whole series is like that. Uh, so if you like your young lady heroes sensible and strong-willed and thoughtful, you'll appreciate Tiffany. She lives like a humble life on the chalk, which is this rural area full of cheese and, you know, sheep and that sort of thing. It's very old English in terms of setting. And this is her home and she meets the Knack-Mack Fiegel, which is a kind of blue pixie or brownie. And like the Smurfs, sort of, but if the Smurfs were drunk, foul-mouthed Scots, (laughs) (laughs) they're the funniest. The Knack-Mack Fiegel develop a deep respect for Tiffany because she's the Hag of the Hills or the Witch of the Chalk, and they're there for her and as a bright spot of hilarity throughout the series. And a lot of Tiffany's education is about the responsibilities of being a witch, and there are other witches in training, and some of them are like... You know, these gothy witches led by a girl named Anagramma who's, they're all about the gear and looking like a witch and wearing jewelry and stuff like that, but not actually helping anyone. And meanwhile, Tiffany's like clipping the elderly's toenails and staying with them while they die and teaching people about germs and that sort of thing. (laughs) And I love, I love Tiffany like I love Susan Stohelet, which is another character in Discworld. She's the daughter of death. They're both extremely intelligent, extremely self-possessed types who have a very strong sense of self and purpose. And a big event happens in each of these books that threatens the chalk or Tiffany herself. And each event is an education for Tiffany. And this is, I think, an excellent book for younger people, even though I suspect Pratchett wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, this is my YA genre book as he was writing the series. It's very much about responsibility to the world beyond yourself and not getting caught in the trappings of power but using the power you have whether you're a very small person or a very big person for good and unselfish purposes and you get to watch Tiffany grow from a little girl she's like nine years old when the series begins to a young woman in her late teens but because she's a special sort of girl you know, The We Free Men, which is the first book in the series, isn't written as a children's book. Just to be clear, these books are written just the same as any other Discworld book. But I want to say there's something a little bit different about them. And I am I was struggling to find the word. It's almost like a gentleness. I feel like Pratchett is putting on the grandfather or dad hat with this series. It's more careful about its messaging as if it's trying to make an important point about purpose and our responsibility to each other. And yeah, so I hope that made sense. But it's also super funny and an absolute delight. It never gets stodgy or sanctimonious. I don't think Pratchett is capable of that sort of thing, and I can't recommend the series enough. So that was the Tiffany Aching series in the Discworld universe by Terry Pratchett. I, confession, I've never read any Terry Pratchett books ever, except for, except for, I read Good Omens that he wrote with Neil Gaiman, but I'm not sure that actually counts. I mean, I guess it counts. Anyway, I have never read a Discworld book for sure, Um, but you might have just sold me on where I could start because it just seems so overwhelming, especially as a grown up. Like if, if you started as a kid, you're a little bit more, I think I was a little bit more willing to just kind of dive in and see what happens. But as a grown up, especially with a series of that size that has so much like weight attached to it in the, you know, sci-fi fantasy community. Like I just, I'm like, oh, it's too much. I can't, I don't even know where to begin, but you might have just sold me. (laughs) Yeah, this is a great, this is an excellent one to start out with if you're just getting into Discworld because other adult characters from Discworld come into this one. So totally recommend it. I hope you do. 
Oh, I probably will. I probably will. All right. Um, let's see. For my sci-fi pick, I I picked the first manga that I ever. I'm pretty sure it's among the first manga that I ever read, and it's definitely the first manga series that I ever finished. In part because it is only eight books long, <laughs> unlike <laughs> a lot on. of manga, <laughs> which are like still going twenty three years later. They're still going, um, and will go forever and and long live them. Um, but I am not up to that level of. Of investment. But Pluto by Naoki Urasawa and Osamu Tezuka is so good. Um, it has murderous robots and robots that look like people and people that are mad about robots. It's very robot focused in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, it takes place in a future where there are sentient humanoid robots that pass for human. Um, so you might like work next to a robot and not know uh, until like something came up. You know, if it comes up, then you would know, but you wouldn't necessarily know just by looking at them. Um, but there are also these seven great robots of the world that are like super, super powers, I guess, in, in this world. Um, and most of them look like robots. You would know just from looking at them that you, they look like robots. And something is, someone or something is destroying them. And so you are following this detective from Europol who is assigned to investigate the serial murders of the robots. But he is actually like a humanoid robot. So he is one of the targets and he's trying to find out like who is doing this. So he is basically trying to catch his own potential killer, which is very, uh, is a very effective plot. And so over the course of the series, um, you meet the different robots of the world, all of whom have very sort of different lives and focuses and are just fascinating. Like the world building in this, I loved it. Um, you also get to see some people and like how they, you know, you get perspective of the humans in the world um, and the the actual murderer is such a good villain such a creepy good villain and I love the art in this series I just found it so like art is really important to me when I'm reading graphic novels and manga and I really fell in love with this style it's just just really beautifully done like all around um and they're not Super hard to get a hold of, although certain volumes, I feel like five was just impossible to get. Um, but but generally speaking, they have them at libraries. You can order them online. And I, if you have if you have never read a manga before, I definitely recommend this one because once you get used to like you're flipping the pages backwards, otherwise it's just it's just an amazing story, and you feel really the the world building is so specific, and the plot just draws you right in. And I think. If I'm remembering correctly, it's inspired by Astro Boy, which, of course, is, was a lot of people's first um, manga uh, or like cartoon for that matter. Um, but this is a sort of reinterpretation of Astro Boy and that world. And so so there's a lot of um, cultural touch points, I think, that you may be familiar with, even though you didn't think you were, just because Astro Boy is so integrated into comics and, and pop culture in a lot of ways. So yeah, I murder robots. It's a thing <laughs> that, I, that I am here for. <laughs> and it, it was so hard for me to pick a side sci-fi series this even felt a little bit like cheating just because there's so many great ones out there but I wanted one that was 
just, you know, somehow different in a way that set it apart enough that I could pull it off of my shelf and like out of the sea of sci-fi series that I love. Um, and when I remembered Pluto, I was like, oh, that is it. That's the one that I'm going to talk about. Because there are, there are so many series we could have talked about, but you know, the show is only like 45 minutes max. So we had to, we had to narrow it down somehow. So yeah, if you have never read a manga or you love manga, you just haven't read this one, I definitely recommend. Um, so that is Pluto, which is eight volumes by Naoki Urasawa and Osamu Tezuka. I also had a bit of a difficult time with the science fiction pick. <laughs> but then I remembered Octavia Butler. Yay! <laughs> and I read the first book in this series so long ago I had to refresh my memory. But this is the Patternist series. And people might also know it as the Pattern Master or Seed to Harvest series. Um and here's something interesting about this series, and I was so confused because I knew I had read Wild Seed, but I was like, wait a second, why does it say that's not the first book in the series? So this book, uh, the series is a total of four books, five if you want to get technical, but I'll get to that. <laughs> and the series isn't ordered in in order of publication. So even though Wild Seed is listed as book one in the series, and that's the book I think everybody starts out with, it wasn't the first book published. So some people, some people do read it chronologically. And if you wanted to read the Patternist books in order of publication date, it would end up being book four, book two, book one, then book three. <laughs> so basically totally out of order. And it, it was very confusing for a moment. And there's also another book called Survivor, which would have made this a series of five books. But Butler didn't like that book so much, she didn't bring it back into print. And it's not included in Seed to Harvest, which is one book that collects the entire series. So I wanted to preface my discussion of the series with that factoid and a vague apology <laughs> because I went in the listed order, which I think most people go in because I'm a rule follower. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I'll mostly be talking about Wild Seed, which is the official first book in the series, because, of course, as things go, things get spoily. Um, so, but first of all, I should say that the Patternist series really heavily deals in race and gender, and the first book deals a lot with slavery. So what I'm basically saying is all the trigger warnings, there's some really unpleasant stuff about breeding in particular and about, mm -hmm. you know, the slave trade. Um, so I was basically outraged the whole time, but it's actually, you know, it's intentional. This is Octavia Butler. So, you know, she's saying things for a reason. Um, so when the story begins, we're following on Yanwu, who's an African woman and she's an oracle. And I'm not, and y'all, I'm going to have problems saying this with my tongue tying. On Yanwu's, people look to her and they respect her, but even though she's able to perform these amazing feats no human should be able to accomplish, she can't protect them from the slave trade. And this is the 17th century, and slavers are this ever-present threat, um, and right away you're introduced to that. And amidst these trials, on Yanwu meets a man as ancient, and I mean centuries old, as ancient as she is, if not more so. So he convinces her to come with him and help him in executing what seems like this compelling, big design. He makes all sorts of promises to her, and for various reasons and with complex emotions and plenty of doubt on Yanwu accepts this offer, even though I was like, please don't! He sounds mm -hmm. like a shady character. <laughs> 
but I mean, if you think about it, it wouldn't be that grand to basically be immortal when you have the pleasure of seeing your friends and family die around you. So, you know, she's outliving her children, which is a big problem for her. It's a big point in sort of what compels her to make these decisions. So just meeting someone like herself was this big deal. And what follows as a result of this meeting is this sprawling epic series that takes us from the 17th century, perhaps even earlier than that to like ancient Egypt, to the future. And this alone I find intriguing because these big series do give you sort of an opportunity where you might not have it in smaller series where you can really go way out there in terms of what time period you're covering. And I was just talking about Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves and how he really looks ahead in that book. And this series even goes even further by taking us way back in time and following this domino effect into a future setting. And I don't know, I feel like I can't be alone in finding that deep exploration very satisfying. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) And so when the book begins, it seems more like fantasy than science fiction as well. Um, Doro, the man who's offer Onyanwu accepts uh, has his own tribe of sorts uh, in America and they each have like the people in his tribe each have different powers Onyanwu for instance is a shapeshifter and then there's telekinesis there's the ability to control the elements in a way there's super strength they're basically like superheroes but really messed up superheroes and not heroic at all in some cases Um, And Doro's people are occasionally referred to as witches in the story, which did give me like a double take at first because I was like, well, is this science fiction? Is this fantasy? But as you progress through the story and through time, you begin to see the science fiction elements. And as you learn about the backstory, you start to see what is actually happening here. And this isn't a lighthearted read. Again, there is that slavery aspect. There's some graphic imagery Um, Gender is also a theme in the series and there is like a power struggle that's a little bit difficult to watch play out. Uh, But even though a lot of cringing went into my reading experience, I thought it was so, so impressive and compelling. And, you know, I don't have to say a lot about Octavia Butler's genius, but her imagination goes to some fascinating places and she explores some big themes and issues with so much creativity and thoughtfulness. There is a reason her books obviously are classics and the writing is excellent. The story is delivered with a lot of clarity, which I think is important when you're covering some really nasty subject matter to have that clarity of thought present in the writing. Um, So yeah, if you're particularly looking to read more science fiction classics, the Patternist series would be, I think, my universal recommendation. And you can test it out with Wild Seed. These books can mostly function as standalones. I know a lot of people just read Wild Seed and really enjoyed that reading experience. But, you know, for whatever reason, because series are huge, um, they just stuck with Wild Seed. And that can be kind of a nice relief from you know, the prolific, the the ubiquitous cliffhangers (laughs) that happen in series. So yeah, again, that was the Patternist series by Octavia Butler. And that was our show. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please do drop us a line at sffyeah at bookriot.com. If you have a comment, if you have feedback, if you have an idea for a future show, we are accepting all of those things. Um, You can also drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love to see the feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find me on Tumblr. It's jenirl.tumblr.com. What about you, Sharifa? You can find me on Instagram. I'm at S-Zainab-Williams, S-Z-A-I-N-A-B-Williams. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.